Welcome to Sword and Shield, the official podcast of the 960th Cyberspace Wing. Join us for insight, knowledge, mentorship, and some fun as we discuss relevant topics in and around our wing. Please understand that the views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of the U.S. Air Force nor the Air Force Reserve, and no endorsement of any particular person or business is ever intended. All right. Well, good day, gladiators. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Sword and Shield podcast. It's Francis Martinez, Director of Psychological Health for the 960th Cyberspace Wing. And I have two very special guests with me um, on the line. So I'm going to turn it over to Lieutenant Colonel Emily Rucker to introduce herself. Uh, hello, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Emily Rucker. I am an Air Force reservist working in the 16th Air Force uh, Surgeon General's office. And your discipline is a doctor of psychology, correct? Correct. All righty. And thank you for joining us today. We also have Dr. Soad Mitchelson. So I'll turn it over to Dr. Mitchelson. Well, hello, everyone. I'm Soad Mitchelson. I am a board certified psychiatrist uh, in children, adolescents, and adults. And um, I am at San Antonio Behavioral Healthcare Hospital and Medical Director of the Outpatient Services. So thank you both for joining us. Uh, it seems like it's been only a couple of days since we last spoke. So for those listeners out there, we did have a mental health and resiliency fair. And both Dr. Mitchelson and uh, Colonel Rucker were on our panel as our medical panel of experts. And so today's podcast, we just kind of wanted to recap on um, the event. It was a very large successful event and there's a lot of questions that unfortunately we uh, weren't able to get answered during the um, panel and so we want to you know afford that time now to um, be able to to do that so thank you guys I know um, it, it was a very busy weekend uh, overall we had over 1200 uh, people both virtually and in person so uh, we're looking forward to to next year for sure but here are some questions um, that we had um, just unable to answer. And so for Colonel Rucker, um, some folks want to know, like, what are some good coping strategies? And a follow-on question for that, you know, we hear journaling and uh, things like that, but some people just don't know how to journal or what that looks like. Um, so what do you think about some good coping strategies? Sure. Um, so I think there's a lot out there. I think the, um, the challenge for a lot of people, right, sometimes is that they think of coping strategies um, and they don't consider that they may already be doing some things that are actually just are naturally inclined to do. Um, you know, a number of people uh, enjoy some sort of physical activity that doesn't have to be a major um, physical challenge it could be getting out and walking or um, dancing of any sort just kind of getting your body moving uh, is often something people do to to just kind of manage whatever's coming up day to day um, another thing right um, a lot of people um, whether it's meditation or prayer that tends to kind of give them a chance to uh, spend some time um, kind of just contemplating or, or considering, kind of focusing their attention and their mind 
that can often be really helpful as well. Um, and again, it doesn't have to be in any one prescribed way. Um, the other thing you mentioned, right, with journaling, um, this idea of writing and just kind of writing how you're feeling or what's going on. Um, there are a number of people who like to do that. Um, some people say journaling just doesn't come natural to them. Um, so an alternative might be creating or poetry, um, drawing. It really um, can be anything that you just enjoy doing um, that uh, helps you just kind of take a moment to relax. So um, I would really encourage people to kind of just look at what are things that they just enjoy doing when they do have the time and maybe make a little extra time for those activities. Yeah, I know when I work with uh, some folks and you, we talk about journaling a lot, right? And then you're kind of reprocessing um, and re-journaling, but again, not everyone's a writer. And so uh, part of that, I ask them, well, if you can't write it down, drawing or sketching or painting, um, some other method of just to show how you were feeling in the moment. Music is always a great option mm -hmm. as well. And so um, I think that's how a lot of folks, they don't realize that, hey, these are good coping strategies that I'm using. Um, they just think of it as, you know, something they always, they always do. So adding some intentions behind what they're doing. Absolutely. So Dr. Mitchelson, um, one of the questions that we had uh, received um, for teenagers and young adults, what are the best methods to use to increase self-help skills? Um, so asking for help, recognizing triggers, areas they don't know how to cope with. Well, one of the most important things is to improve an insight. And insight is, is basically what it means is knowing yourself. Um, so as we grow uh, and we progress developmentally, um, it would be very helpful for parents as well as teachers, you know, in the school system um, to help uh, the kids start knowing themselves, acknowledging their emotions, acknowledging their behavioral responses. Um, the important thing that comes out of that uh, is in the teenagers and young adults is if they start having negative emotions or they feel like they're frustrated and can't move on or find a solution to what they would consider as a problem, then they learn how to seek out help. Now, one of the biggest self-help skills is to be able to acknowledge when one is struggling to be able to reach out to others. Um, and that is a very important um, skill for actually all ages, but especially for teenagers and young adults. Yeah, we had a brave teenager stand up during our um, event and, you know, asked, you know, if my friends are needing help and I'm needing help, how do we go about getting that? And um, what happens if they don't want that help? And, and that was a pretty powerful move. I, I know that uh, Ms. Zaya's got a lot of recognition for that, just for the bravery for standing up and asking um, that type of question. Um, but I, I think that a lot of kids are scared or they don't think that they need the help, right? 
Definitely. Um, they can't identify that something's going wrong. And actually that's, it's more, it's more of it's, they can't identify that something's wrong, right? They have these kind of negative feelings, whether it's sadness or anxiety or, or they just feel even physically sick, um, but they don't know what it is. And so they feel that they can't reach out for help unless they know what's going on. Uh, and so it's important for us to learn um, and teach our teenagers and young adults as well as ourselves that you don't have to wait to know what's going on. If you feel some discomfort, be able to reach out and have at least one person, one adult, one person that can respond um, that's identified so you can discuss things with them. Um, I can't tell you how many times I hear from teenagers that they have been dealing with negative feelings, uh, call it depression, call it anxiety, even suicidal thoughts. Um, but they never said anything because they thought that was what they call normal, right? They've been experiencing it for such a long time. They didn't know that they needed or could ask for help. And here's the second uh, part to this question that our um that one of our service members asked. So what are the common or frequent reasons that teenagers and young adults are seeking help or being directed to get help? Well, definitely when there are safety concerns, um, we should be able to seek help before, and, and, and I'll speak to that, but the first and most um, important, let's say idea or emotion or feeling um, that needs help and needs to be addressed in any milieu is thoughts of hurting oneself or thoughts of hurting others, or even to the point where they're feeling like they're hear hearing voices that are telling them either way to hurt themselves or hurt others. Um, those are, let's say, symptoms that need to be responded to immediately. You don't really have to figure too much out. You just have to find someone that knows how to manage them to be in contact with the person that's experiencing that. Um, but the idea is that with education and decreasing stigma, we can help people reach out, right? We can help teenagers, young adults reach out before they get to that point, when they're feeling like they just can't function in school or not functioning as well, or things are happening with their friendships, right? Like they're, they're losing friendships. Um, or even the young adults, they're having, they're struggling with jobs they could do before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so the next question is going to be for Colonel Rucker. Um, it's a two-part question. So can a commander direct a member to mental health treatment? And do you tell my commander or first sergeant what I'm saying in therapy? If you're on active duty orders or on active status and it's emergent, um, the commander can direct if they have a reason um, to believe and a reason to believe meaning a statement of behavior um, that would suggest there's an imminent safety risk um, for that individual. They can direct that person for a mental health assessment to ensure safety. Um, and, and they have to not only provide the evidence of behaviors to the mental health clinic, um, they, they just can't say, you know, I kind of have this general idea. They have to explain to the mental health clinic what specifically is giving them cause to believe there's an imminent safety risk. Um, and that instance they can direct. Uh, the other instance where they could direct is if someone is demonstrating 
um, behaviors or symptoms that are consistent with a mental health um, issue that is impairing their ability to do their job, their military job. And in that instance, they can request what's a routine commander-directed evaluation. Again, they have to talk to mental health in advance, provide what it is that is leading them um, to believe there might be a mental health condition, how they, it's impacting um, the job. And then, and then once that's verified that it's appropriate, the process can begin. Um, and again, that's also for to assess whether there's a major safety issue, whether there's a significant mental health issue that's uh, uh, impairing someone from doing their duty um, that needs treatment, um, or if there's not a mental health issue and the issues aren't related to mental health at all, they at least then have kind of ruled that out. But it also then gives the commander, the provider gives commander recommendations on how to support the member if there is a, um, a condition and recommended treatment. Um, in terms of if you're engaging in regular uh, treatment, say at the MTF, at the mental health clinic, there are um, certain only specific circumstances um, during which they can speak to your commander about whatever about your treatment. Um, so that would be um, they have a mandatory notification if you disclose certain things um, or they can talk to your commander if you give them permission to talk to your commander and you sign a release of information. Um, so the commander only gets information on a need to know basis and those instances are described in the informed consent that you would review and sign before you start treatment or if you give permission for the provider to speak to the commander and then you can give specifically what you give them permission to speak to your commander about. Gotcha. So um, I, I know we've had some questions around like um, once the recommended treatment is there, can mm -hmm. continued or, you know, that uh, commander direct actual treatment or just the evaluation? No, the commander can only direct evaluation. They cannot direct treatment. So the commander can direct the evaluation if they meet the, if, if the situation meets the criteria for a commander directed evaluation. When the evaluation done is done, recommendations are given both to the individual and um, about, you know, recommendations from a mental health perspective about, you know, we would recommend treatment, this type of course of treatment or whatever it might be. Um, it is still up to the individual whether or not they want to pursue that treatment. Um, they cannot be forced unless they are an imminent risk to themselves or others and need to be hospitalized. That's a whole different conversation. But if we're talking recommendation that they engage in outpatient therapy, that is still voluntary. Um, the individual can decline to engage in that treatment. Now, there might be some ramifications because of that, particularly if the individual is experiencing um, a condition that really uh, necessitates treatment. There may be implications if they choose not to engage in treatment, but that should all that would also likely be a discussion when the individual says, "Well, I don't really know that I want it." You know, the the provider or the evaluator um, will be explaining or should be explaining, kind of, "Hey, well, here's what." potential implications are with regards to say to readiness um, without treatment. So they will facilitate a um, educated decision on the individual's part. Okay. And then, so I know in the beginning, 
um, you said active duty or those that are on orders. So can a commander direct evaluation for a traditional reservist? Um, is that only during drill weekends or while they're on in status? Um, if they get a call and it's kind of sounding uh, concerning um, during the week, for instance, and they're not in status. So if it's drill weekend um, and something arises where there appears to be an imminent risk, the commander, you know, particularly if it's you know down in San Antonio, since there is CMC and they have an emergency room, if it's drill weekend and the, M the Lackland MTF's not open and there is an imminent risk, they could command and direct an emergency mental health evaluation at the CMC ER, mm -hmm. um, specifically for safety, um, safety concerns. Uh, not, it wouldn't be for traditional, you know, just non-emergent concerns. It would purely be if there's an imminent safety concern on the individual. They could command direct the person to the ER and do it that way. Um, if again, UTA weekend and you're in San Antonio. If you are not, if you're on inactive status and you're, you know, in your day-to-day -day -day weekday life, um, there's no drill weekend going on and there's concerns, um, so there is an assumption, there is a presumption of fitness when you show up to UTA weekend. So the military has a presumption of fitness, which means they're assuming when you show up that you are medically and psychologically fit and healthy. If things have been going on in the time that you were inactive, you are supposed to report those to your um, medical uh, resources or your medical support um, because if you need to be on a profile or you need support or it's gonna impact your ability to do your job, um, the military wants to be able to support you and address that so that, um, so that one, you're taken care of and so that two, they're also then aware um, what might be impacting your readiness. If you um, just happen to have a crisis in the middle of the week, um, again, the commander isn't necessarily, you're not in touch with your commander, the commander really can't kind of direct it um, ultimately, um, hopefully someone around you may say, may recognize that there's an imminent risk or there's a, um, cause for an emergent concern and they may try, uh, encourage you to go to the ER or be willing to take you, or, um, they can call law enforcement if they need, um, if they have, uh, if there is an imminent concern, like you've stated, you're going to hurt yourself or someone else and law enforcement may come out and then um, facilitate an emergency mental health evaluation. But that again, is that wouldn't be your commander. That's just kind of separate in the civilian sector. Yeah, and so um, just a reminder to our listeners, the ask, care, escort model, right? ACE model, um, being able to ask if someone is a danger to themselves or others, um, if they are suicidal or homicidal, uh, providing that care, never leaving them alone and escorting them to whatever facility, ER, uh, contacting uh, 911 if it is an emergent crisis. So, so Dr. Mitchelson, the next questions are, are for you. Um, it's a three-part question. So um, I have a family, or family history of depression and anxiety. Does that mean I'll have it or my kids will have it? Not at all. Um, when, we, when we ask about family history, um, it is because there is a genetic predisposition, but genetic predisposition means that there's a higher chance 
in certain situations that the condition like depression or an anxiety disorder will present, but it doesn't mean that it will. In other words, just because your mom or dad had an anxiety disorder or a depressive disorder, it does not mean that the children are necessarily going to present. But the, the important thing is to know your family history. So uh, for example, if there's high blood pressure in the family, it doesn't mean that everyone's gonna have high blood pressure, but you wanna take care of yourself so that these symptoms don't present themselves. It happens in physical um, situations or physical conditions, just like it happens in uh, psychiatric conditions. Okay, and the next question to piggyback off that one, if I start taking antidepressants, will I need them for the rest of my life? So antidepressants are a treatment uh, for very different conditions, for example, depression, uh, anxiety. And so the way that kind of the baseline way of looking at this is you take the, the antidepressant is recommended, the patient takes the antidepressant from the moment they start feeling well, there's a recommendation for a six to 12 month maintenance period, which is very important. And people kind of forget because they start feeling good. And so they go, I'm feeling good. And they stop their meds. But if um, the recommendation is a six to 12 month maintenance. At that time, if the person is asymptomatic, which means no symptoms, or they're functioning where they would like to function, things seem to be going well, then the medication with the guidance of the psychiatrist is tapered off. Um, the continuation of follow-up is very important, even if they're not taking medication, to try to make sure that the person continues uh, to be stable or symptom-free. Um, so the answer to that is no, antidepressants are not for the rest of your life. Awesome to hear that. I know, I know that's one of the misconceptions or the fear that I hear people, you know, not wanting to take medications because I don't want to be on it for the rest of my life, or I don't want it to um, further disable me, right? They feel like that's a disabling um, thing. Uh, the last question is, I've been referred to TMS. Can you tell me more about it? And what is ECT? Okay, so um, those two, TMS, um, those TMS and ECT, so those two are procedures um, in psychiatry that can help with depression, or obsessive compulsive disorder, or even individuals that have some chronic conditions, um, especially if they do not respond to medications. Um, so TMS, for example, is a procedure where there is a magnet pulse uh, that goes through the brain. It does not hurt, uh, very, very low uh, side effects to it, uh, maybe headache uh, that goes away pretty quickly. And it's a session, it's about a one month every day, um, except for like weekend sessions that you do for about 45 minutes. Now, there are different types of TMS that are coming out now. So the sessions could be much shorter. Um, they could also be uh, decreased in, in, uh, in time, as in duration of the day or time that they, or amount of sessions that have to be run. Uh, but along with medication, so this is the important uh, concept also, along with medication, it can help 
with depression as well as with anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder. And there's a lot of research being done with TMS. Now, ECT is another very important procedure. It's a procedure uh, that it's electric convulsive therapy. Um, it can sound pretty scary. A lot of people, when they hear this, they go, oh my gosh, you know, this is the, this is the old timey kind of uh, shock therapy. Well, nowadays it is very, very, very controlled. It's controlled by an anesthesiologist uh, as well as a psychiatrist. And I saw, and when I say controlled is, it's not, it's not dramatic. Um, it does, it, it, it does produce a type of seizure uh, in the brain, but the person is completely unconscious um, and they're not moving. So th there's, no, there's no seizure movement that is occurring. Now, the big importance to ECT is that it is very effective in treating very, very difficult and severe depression, um, as well as difficult to treat uh, depression and bipolar disorder or depression and schizophrenia. Um, so although those two procedures, because people don't know them very well, seem very scary, they are very effective treatment when medications alone are not helping. Yeah, and uh, I, I know you said ECT is electroconvulsive therapy. Just for our listeners, TMS refers to transcranial magnetic stimulation. Um, so it's, it's, uh, recommended from, uh, from physicians, right? You have, it's a pretty, um, hefty referral process. Um, but if you're interested in that, we do have, um, facilities and, and we can give you recommendations to, uh, to talk to your physicians about if that's something that you are interested, um, in receiving. I know we can go on for hours about, you know, the, the, uh, some more of these questions or the conversation of mental health and, and May being mental health, uh, awareness month, it is, you know, very important for us. Um, and, uh, and so I just want to thank you both for, uh, joining me today and joining us, uh, you know, uh, for, for our event. And I hope that we can continue to, uh, try to destigmatize mental health, educate folks, and uh, really get on that forefront uh, of this and be on the wellness end instead of the illness end of mental health. So thank you both for joining. Thank you for having us. Yeah, for our listeners, if you or someone you know are contemplating suicide, please contact the National Suicide Hotline at 800 Two seven three eight two five five, and just uh, an FYI, beginning in July, um, the number is changing to nine eight eight. So um, in July, the crisis line will be nine eight eight. So again, I appreciate both of you, um, and gladiators out.